we're going to we're going to we're studying the book of John and we're in a part of the book of John that this is much like I, I missed this last week. This is much like Christmas. It's, it's something that people know about. People know about the trial of Jesus. It's, it's a pretty familiar passage. And what I want you to do, I'm going to read it, but I want you to now start to try to think in terms of what's going on. What would it like to be there? What are people thinking? Right. So so think about this. First of all, we're going to have Annas and Caiaphas. These are the 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 these are the leaders, the spiritual leaders, uh, kind of of the nation. One, uh, they're both called the high priests for reasons we'll get into, and they're dealing with anger. Right? They hate Jesus and what he stands for, and that anger is is spawning from fear because of what he could do to them. They know that if Jesus is the Messiah and he becomes the king of the nation, they're out. And so they're afraid. They're going to lose their standing. They're going to lose everything. And we're going to talk about that. So there, So what do you have here in this passage? You have tremendous fear from them. And then we'll see, I call it two trials, because we're going to see the trial of Jesus. It'll continue into the, the next time. And also we're seeing the trial of Peter. What's Peter dealing with? Fear. He's dealing with fear. He's dealing with these emotions. Now, try to think about, because it's easy to be hard on Peter. Like, dude, I mean, you could have just said, yeah, I knew him. This is this. But try to understand, everything he thought has crashed to the ground. This is, as far as he's concerned, this is the end. He's kind of tagging along Hoping he doesn't know what he's what he's. I don't think he knows what he's tagging along for. Maybe something incredible will happen. Maybe, but he doesn't. He just thinks this is this is the worst thing possible that could have happened, and he is despondent and scared. Um, we know the last time that somebody who said they were the Messiah, he's, he was called Judas the Galilean, and he arose. And when they finally captured him, they hunted his followers down and crucified all of them. Thousands, thousands, and this was maybe 15, 18 years before this, maybe 20, something like that, 20 years before this. Thousands of Jews were crucified, especially in the area of Galilee, where Peter grew up, where Jesus grew up. In every village, there were people on a cross. This is what happens. This is what happens when you defy Rome. This is what happens when you don't pay your taxes to Rome. This is what happens when you think you can take this land from us. This is what happens. So Peter knows. He's thinking, man, where are we going to go? What will happen? If Jesus dies, they're going to hunt every one of us down. And he's scared to death. All right? So there's this pervasive fear. And I'm going to read you 12 through 27. It's a little bit long, but just hang in there. You can follow. It's John 18. You can follow along in your Bibles on your phone, or you can just listen, and I'll, and I'll read it to you. The detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back and spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought 
Peter in. You are one of his, this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is that the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is, of, to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then, Jesus sent, then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. So we have this, this story. We have this, what's going on here. And in, in, in review, you know, we have this long, from, from John 13 on, where Jesus taught the disciples intensively because he knew it was, he was at the end, his, his last words, as it were. And so he was teaching them, giving them just a tremendous amount of information, knowing, and it even says in it, we talked about this, knowing that much of it they might not understand at this time. They would understand later. It would start to make sense later. They would have these aha moments later. But Jesus was teaching them, setting them up for that. Right? And so he knows that as they leave and they walk over in the, through, through the valley, over to the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows what's coming. He's teaching. He's praying with them, getting them ready, getting himself ready. And then across the valley, this cohort of soldiers with torches and then these officials come marching with them. And if you remember, what was interesting was Jesus went to them. It's almost like Jesus was like, you guys could miss me. I'm gonna make sure you find me. So he goes to them. Why? Because he's in charge. He's in control. This isn't surprising him. He didn't look across the valley and said, what in the world is that about? He knew. So Jesus goes to them. And so we're gonna look at this passage now He's being arrested and he's being taken into Jerusalem, into the city. And I'm not going to out. It's just, it just flows. This passage just flows. I don't need to outline it because John here is describing events. He's not exactly teaching us a lesson, although the events do teach us. And we'll look at that. But it's interesting to me that Peter, he was he saw and he was involved in miracles that Jesus did. Jesus quite possibly saved his life by healing the man's ear that he, had, that he had attacked. Jesus negotiates with his captors not to take the disciples with them, saving their lives. And then Peter denies him three times. Do you ever wish you could go back and change a decision you made? I think about this. What was Peter thinking? What was going on in his heart? But if we're honest, we can relate. This can be us very easily. Because if you have failed miserably, let me tell you, you have a friend in Peter. If you are frustrated with your sinfulness and cried out over it, you have a friend in Peter. If you have done something you wish you could take back, you have a friend in Peter. 
If you have ever felt alone and cold and dark, you have a friend in Peter. If you ever ever done something so bad that you don't think God will ever want you back, you have a friend in Peter. And we see in this situation, these two trials, that there is this basis of fear underlining both of them. The fear that the, that the, uh, the leaders, the Sadducees especially have of losing their place. And so what, did they, what are they doing? They're acting out viciously towards Jesus because of that. And the fear that Peter has, and for both of them, we see something. They're fearing man more than they're fearing God. And this will always undo us. Always. So the first, that, those first couple of verses where it talks about the detachment of soldiers with the command of the Jewish officials, they arrested Jesus, they bound him, they brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leader that it, was, it would be good for one man if he died for the people. Now, I got to take a moment. We've got to set this scene. We've got to talk about the culture that we're in. We've got to talk about the history of the moment. So we've got to take a little time here to talk about Annas and Caiaphas and what's going on here, because this is important for us to understand, all right? There were three main groups jockeying for power in Israel at that time, all right? Jockeying for power uh, underneath the Romans. But the, the Pharisees were a, big, a major group. They, they, they were... They were considered the very righteous ones. They lived by the law to the excruciating detail. And we've already seen in John how oftentimes they lost the concept of mercy and grace because they were so law-oriented, so works-oriented. They were so, so much into just following every little bit. There also were the zealots. The zealots were revolutionaries. The zealots were the terrorists of those days. They were especially strong when you get out to northern Galilee. And, and if you remember, that's where when Jesus went and fed the people, they said, we're going we're gonna to grab him and make him our king. The zealots wanted this king to come. The Pharisees wanted a king, but they thought we will live so righteously. At some point, God will go, man, they're good. I got to help. I got to send a king. The zealots, though, they thought, no, we need a king. We need to kill people until we get a big group of people and then we have an army and then we get a king. They were for a violent overthrow of Rome and they were looking for a king. That's why Jesus was so appealing to them. Having a king that can heal your wounded is really good if you're in a war. That's an important thing. Having a king that can raise the dead, that's the best, right? They're thinking about this because they want him to be their king. He has this power. He seems to fit the bill. We can take it over from from the Romans. So the zealots, they were the terrorists. I mean, it's that same old thing. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. It's, they were the terrorists at the time. And the Jews looked at them as freedom fighters for, the, for trying to get them freedom. Finally, they were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were wealthy. They were willing to go along with Rome. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. They only followed the first five books of the law and they didn't believe that there was a resurrection. So consequently, what they believed was, if you want good, you've got to get it now. Get while the getting's good. So that's why they, no worry, they did not have a problem going along with Rome because it made them rich. All right? And so Annas was an especially powerful, he probably was one of the greatest Sadducees 
that ever lived in terms of power. And he was, he was very smart. He was corrupt. He was poisonous. The Talmud, which is the Jewish writings about history, the Talmud tells us that Annas and his house were evil and corrupt. And so they were in charge, they were in charge, the Romans appointed them in charge of the temple. And that means money to them. They controlled the temple, they enforced the laws of the temple. He had a large family. There are a number of references in some, in some books about the booths of the sons of Annas who controlled the temple area and cheated people out of their money. How did they do that? Well, if you were bringing a sacrifice, if it was a lamb, it was supposed to be an unblemished lamb, right? So you find a lamb in your flock, you go, wow, this is the, this is the most beautiful lamb. This lamb will do for a sacrifice to God. And you come to the temple and they have inspectors to make sure nobody brings in unclean lambs. And this inspector is in the employ of Annas. And he starts to, oh, 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 just behind his ear, there's a mole. I'm sorry. He's unclean. But today is your lucky day. I happen to have 10 clean ones, pre-inspected, guaranteed. They're a little expensive, but that's what you pay for the pre-inspection. And they would reject lambs and make people buy lambs. What else would they do? They would collect the temple tax. You come into the temple. Maybe you have Roman coins. Maybe you have some coins from Galilee. There's all kinds of currencies going on. And you say, I want to pay my temple tax. This is part of my offering to God. I'm trying to serve God. And they would say, that's great. Except we have special temple coins that you have to use to pay the temple tax. And I'm the exchanger. You ever go to the exchange, if you've ever traveled overseas, go to get your money exchanged to, from, from one currency to another, and you go, wait, how much are you keeping to do this for me? And that, that's what's going on there. They would keep a huge cut of it for exchanging your money for you. So they were, they were corrupt. Everyone knew it. But if you wanted to worship God, you had to deal with it. And so most Jews dealt with it because they believed they had to go there. They had to give an offering. They had to make a sacrifice. I have to do this. God commands me to do this. He didn't say if people are corrupt, you don't have to do it anymore. He didn't say that. And so people would go and they would cheat them out of money. Annas was like the boss of bosses in a crime family. He was the high priest when Jesus was a child. And finally, the Romans removed him because he kept executing people for minor offenses. But he was extremely powerful. So what the Romans did is they made a deal with him. We'll take you out, but you can choose who the next one is if they'll toe the line. And so he said, oh yeah, my son, one of my sons, he'll be a great high priest. And then after a couple of years, the Romans said, your son is terrible. And he says, okay, 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 my son-in-law, Caiaphas, he'll be a great high priest. That's the power Annas had. Rome didn't like him, but they knew he had such power over the people that would be a problem for them. Because understand what's going on in the rest of this chapter is Rome sends rulers to, to Israel, to Judea, to Galilee, and tells them, look, we don't care what you do, just don't have any wars and collect the taxes and get us our taxes. The taxes, 
especially around Jesus' time, the taxes for the average Jewish peasant was 50%. 50% of their crop was taken and given to Rome. It was, it was incredible. And so what does that do? That foments rebellions. And so Rome said, collect the taxes and keep a tamp, just keep everything under control. If you can do that, you'll get promoted. If you can't keep everything under control, you'll get demoted. And that tells us a lot about what's coming up. Think about the pressure Pilate is under. The Jews want this man executed. Pilate's like, I don't see anything wrong. Uh, but is this going to cause a revolt? One man to save me from dealing with a revolt is worth it. See, these, are, these are these pressures that are going on. This is what's going on with Annas. And that's why they call Annas the high priest, even though he wasn't exactly the high priest. He was a former high priest, so he still gets the title. And that's why they call Caiaphas the high priest. He's Anna, Annas... Annas' son-in-law, and he's a high priest at the time. So he's still very much in power. That's why they took Jesus to his house first. Now, why is this important? Well, I want you to see the power this man had. This is very important to understanding how this stuff develops, but I also want you to see something. I want you to see how he fulfills a biblical prophecy without even knowing it. And this is, this is I think, is some of the things that are so... It's so cool about the Bible and the intricacies of the Bible. Because many times Jesus says, I'm doing this to fulfill scripture. I'm doing this to fulfill scripture. And here is one of those scriptures fulfilled. This is, um, this is a rabbit trail, right? So I get my rabbit trail guitar. And I'm gonna sing my rabbit trail song. Rabbit trail, rabbit trail, Bob's on a rabbit trail. There you go, okay? Just wanted to do that. <laughs> That's stupid. Okay, I don't know why I did that. Okay, so. We're on a rabbit trail. Here, here, here we go. We're going to go real fast, but I, I, I think if you, if you think about this, this is one of those things where it shows us how God made things work. This is Genesis 40.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is a prophecy in Genesis 49, concerning the coming of the Messiah. Now, first just understand, scepter or ruler staff, that is a sign of power. That's a sign of being in control, of being in charge, of having the power. And to the Jews, the power was the, all our laws, enforcing all our laws, including life or death power. Okay, that's... That's key to how they understand that, why they understand that that way. The scepter, the staff, is the power to judge, including life and death cases, all right? So that's what that means. What does Shiloh mean? In the Babylonian Talmud, it tells us, and many other places, the world was created for the sake of the Messiah. What is the Messiah's name? The Messiah's name is Shiloh, for it is written, when Shiloh comes. All right, and there's other references about that. So the Messiah, the rabbis identified as, as Shiloh. The scepter will depart, and that's the sign that Shiloh is here, that the Messiah has come. You got that? Okay, this is, this is why this key, because when did the Jews lose the power to execute a man? When the Jews were captured by Babylon, the Babylonians, they let them continue to have that power. When the Jews were captured by the Greeks, 
they let them continue to have that power within their people, the power of life and death. When the Romans came into power and conquered it, they did too. Until around 20 to 25 AD, when the Romans decided, after watching Annas, after watching his son, they said, we can't trust you with this power. You keep killing people for minor religious infractions. So you don't have it anymore. We rescind your right to kill someone, to execute someone in, in, a, in a trial. So back to that scripture. This power, the scepter, shall not depart from Judah. This power, the ruler's staff, from between his feet. Until Shiloh comes. Now, if you know what's coming, you know what happens. Jesus is going to be at Caiaphas, and then they take him to the Romans. And they even say, we're not allowed to kill people. You have to order that. Because Pilate says, judge them by your law. And they say, we, we can't. You took from us the power. In fact, in uh, another part uh, of the of the Talmud, there's it's called there's two Talmuds, the, the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. Uh, the Jerusalem Talmud says about 40, 40 odd years before the destruction of the temple, the power of pronouncing capital sentences was taken away from the Jews. This destruction of the temple was around AD 70. So 40 something years before that is around AD 25. And so even, even in, the, in, in, the, in the Jerusalem Talmud, which they are not Christians, they're not in any way on Jesus' side, they're admitting this is when we lost it. It was when Jesus was alive. And in Genesis 49, how will you know when the Messiah comes? When the power of life and death is taken away. That's when the Messiah comes. <clears throat> so this prophecy in Genesis 49 rings out to us today. Even today, it tells us. And, and this is an incredible prophecy that has come true. And the people who are against Jesus confirm it. It's not like we're sitting here going, we figured this out. The Jews confirm it by saying that's when we lost life and death. So by our own scriptures, by their own scriptures, that's when the Messiah comes. That's when Jesus lost his life. He was the Messiah. And it's interesting because it says in Genesis 49.10, and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples, all the peoples. Jesus came preaching something the Jews had never thought about. I'm here for everyone in the whole world. I'm here for, I'm here for the Gentiles. I'm here for this Syrophoenician woman who's got this terrible problem with her daughter. I'm here for this Roman centurion that you all hate. And I'm going to heal for him. I'm here for everyone in the whole world. And so you have this verse from, <clears throat> you have this verse from Genesis 49.10, written thousands of years before, that comes true in that day. Unwittingly, they didn't even realize that it was going on. So this is what's going on. That's just, you know, a little rabbit trail that I like that kind of stuff because I think it's very interesting and affirming in, in a lot of ways. So we see these different attitudes toward Jesus. The Romans could care less about Jesus. 
They just wanted no trouble. The Jews could enforce them, their, their laws up to a point and, and then Rome had to be involved. But the whole point was we don't want trouble. The religious leaders hated Jesus. They wanted him dead. Why? Because of power. Because of money. When Jesus overturned the money changers, and this is a, a painting that would be pretty close as a big crowd, and there would be these areas set up with coins where they changed the money. Who did he hurt? Who did he hurt when he did that? He hurt Annas and Caiaphas because this was where they made money. But they have to be careful because Jesus seems very popular. The people had just called him their king a few days before. And so they have a plan. They get a spy. They learn his schedule. They arrest him outside of the city to avoid the crowd. They do it at night to make sure it's no big deal. They want him dead, but they have to go through the Romans to do that. And it's interesting because this has already been talked about. When, when, uh, when uh, Lazarus was healed, they didn't just say, hey, you know, that's a pretty powerful thing. Maybe we should check this guy out and see if he's really the Messiah. Maybe he should be the king. He, he's, he, he's, he's raised someone from the dead. They didn't say that. They said, this man's a threat to us. This is what they said earlier in John. What are we accomplishing, the leaders asked. Here's this man, he's performing many signs. Notice the word signs. What is a sign? A sign shows that there's something going on. A sign tells you something about what's here. Jesus is performing in their own mouths. They're saying he's performing the signs of a Messiah. He's performing these incredible signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. They're suddenly realizing. And then the Romans will come and take away our temple. Interesting. They think the temple is theirs. They think, they think that's our temple. That's our money-making machine. That's our liveli livelihood. <laughs> we have found, they have found what they think is Annas and Caiaphas's houses. And there was only four bath, uh, bathtubs in all of Jerusalem at that time. Annas had one, Caiaphas had one, and one important Roman had two. The, the head of the, the, like, Pilate's house or whoever happened to be in charge at the time, it had two. They're the only people that had bathtubs in all of Jerusalem. Their houses are incredible. Um, Caiaphas's house has hot water. It's just unbelievable what they had. Private bathrooms, unheard of in those days. Just something nobody would even know what to do. It'd be unrecognizable. It, just fabulously wealthy. wealthy. And what did they say? We're going to lose our temple. And then Caiaphas, who's the high priest, spoke up and said, you know nothing at all. Do you not realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish? And he didn't say this on his own, John writes, but as the high priest, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day, that day, the day, a couple days after Lazarus was raised from the dead, what is their reaction? It says from that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life because of power and the fear that he would take it from them. 
And those signs that he's doing, they're realizing, they're realizing those signs are pointing to something. And we don't care. Even if he's the Messiah, we want him dead. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man says to Father Abraham, he says, he says somebody tell my brothers how bad this is. And uh, Father Abraham says, they have Moses, they have the prophets. And the rich man says, no, no, that won't work. We need someone to come back from the dead and then they'll believe, right? And Abraham basically is saying, no, they won't. No, they won't. Because Jesus is telling us that there's a darkness in the human heart that will ignore the greatest of signs. They had the ability to, to say, in spite of a resurrection from the dead, no, he's got to go. In fact, in Matthew 16, the leaders come and they demand Jesus to do a sign for them. They tell him, basically, they're saying, we're in charge. You understand that, right? We're the religious leaders now. Do a sign right now. And Jesus is like, no, that's not how it works. I'm not doing it for you because you won't believe. So here we have these people. They're religious people. They know their Bible. They go to church and they look at Jesus as a problem that needs to be eliminated because they can't give up what they have. Self-preservation, self-interest. Caiaphas is telling them it's either him or us. Somebody's going to lose power here. And it's not surprising to Jesus. He mentioned this. He planned it. Why? I mean, we know why. It's like church, right? If I ask you a question, you know the answer is Jesus somehow, right? But, but what's going on here? Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you power. But I'm going to show you real power. The power over death. Because that is the real power. Everyone's interested in power. And Jesus says, there's one. And so they take him away. Have you ever seen someone led away in handcuffs? Have you ever been like, at, have, maybe I should say, have you ever been led away in handcuffs? Because inside I wanted to scream. No, it's not. I mean, I mean uh, inside what you will want to do is you'll want to scream. It's not what you think. There's an explanation for this. Why? Because te people tend to think, they see someone led away, they think, that guy, what, I wonder what he did. I wonder, he's guilty. I wonder what he did. What did he do to deserve those handcuffs? And Jesus is led away that way. He goes to uh, Annas' house. Simon Peter and the other disciple were following Jesus. Don't, they don't mention who that disciple is. People have all kinds of ideas, but I don't know that anybody can tell for sure who it is, but somehow he has connections. Because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. Peter wasn't let in, but Peter had to wait outside of the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back and spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. Then servant girl, is she some sort of a slave? Is she, they say girl instead of woman. So she's below age of, 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 you know, which for them was about 13, 12 or 13. It could vary at times in with how they celebrate that and, and do that. But so she's probably a preteen, maybe even younger. Basically, she just says, you're not allowed in. You can go in. You're not allowed in. And it's, it's, it's a pretty simple, pretty simple thing. She has soldiers inside that will back her up if there's a problem. And so what happens? They're following 
Peter gets let in. Imagine again the tension in Peter's life right now. The fact that if I'm discovered, I could die. He's incredibly afraid. And this little girl says, you aren't one of the man's disciples, are you? And he replied, I'm not. Peter, just a little while ago, had said, Jesus, I'll die for you. I'll die with you. And now this young slave girl confronts him and he falls to pieces. He's caught off guard. He's surprised in the moment. He makes a snap decision. Self-preservation kicks in. And he denies. Do you ever have things in your life where something that you did, the memory of something that you did, makes you feel terrible and guilty and worthless? It gets, let me just tell you, it gets worse as you get older. It gets worse. It's so funny. Some of the really fun things I have, I don't remember as well. But I remember some terrible things I did in high school. And the fun things you remember, it's like, oh yeah, that was fun. The terrible things are like high definition, full color. Ah, I hate that I did that. I hate that I hurt that person, that I used that person, that I did that, whatever it is. And I, and I know you're just, I'm not going to tell you any of them. I almost told you how I got led away in handcuffs, so I'm not going any deeper than that. <laughs> Those things, this is, this is one of them for Peter. And Peter is us. What do we do? What did Peter do? He cried bitterly afterwards, Scripture tells us. But we also know, and we're coming to it, that great passage in John 21, where Jesus calls Peter out, and Peter flies to him. He goes to him. He jumps in the water and swims to him. And that is something where, if we, if we know how people back then thought of water, is amazing. And it may have been the water. He, maybe he didn't swim. It's just that he jumped in and he went to him. Maybe it was fairly shallow. But water was the place of evil. Not many people learned how to swim because they figured if you fell in the water, you're a goner. The demons have you. Why learn this? Why prolong the agony? And so they thought of water as evil. Jesus, Peter sees Jesus and he just goes. He just goes. It's an amazing passage when we get to it. It's kind of cool. Um, the, the fire that they're standing around literally in the Greek is a charcoal fire. And when Peter gets to the land in John 21, Jesus has built a charcoal fire instead of just out of wood. Because he's saying, Peter, we're going to go through it again. You ready? So, you know, we, we make sometimes what Jesus has done for us very generic you know, Jesus died for my sins. That's pretty generic. But if you start saying, Jesus died for my three denials, you're getting specific. And that's a little more painful. That's a little harder to deal with. And we need to do that sometimes. Here we see Peter and the religious leaders with the same motivation, self-preservation, do what's best for me right now. 
Self-preservation is the opposite of God's plan. He has preserved my soul. He calls me to live in light of his grace and mercy. In verse 19, it says, Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I would have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I, have, I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. You know what Jesus is doing? He's kind of reminding them. And in a sense, he's almost giving a dig here. He's telling them I was very open. Gee, it's nighttime in a house and there's no crowd. I taught with big crowds. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Because we know by Jewish law, a trial at night was forbidden. It was forbidden. We also know by Jewish law, self-incrimination was, was forbidden. And what are they doing? They're trying to get him to incriminate himself in an illegal trial. And so Jesus just cuts him off at the knees. He just says, no, look, hey, Wide open, broad daylight, thousands of people. I taught, you sent spies, you know what I taught. Tell them to tell you, if, you, if you're wondering about a little bit about it. I didn't do anything in secret, like you are. So when Jesus said this, one of the officials slapped him in his face. Is it the way you talk to the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what I'd said wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? And then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So what does Jesus do? The guard slaps him. It's very interesting. Jesus remains calm and gets biblical. He says, hey, we're talking about truth here. Let's talk about truth. What law did I break? Name it. And if I didn't, why did you slap me? He doesn't get angry. He doesn't lose it. He remains calm, but he speaks truth. And this seems to frustrate Annas, so he sends him away, hoping that Caiaphas will take care of this. In verse 25, it says, so Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, aren't you, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? And he denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. At that moment, the rooster began to crow, just as Jesus had told him it would. These are the second and third denial. In, in, in Matthew, it says they recognized him by his accent. We've talked about that. The Galileans had a very very kind of different accent that was considered uncouth and it just gave them away. And one of them says, I can tell by the way you talk, dude, you're from Galilee. You gotta be one of Jesus. And Luke tells us that he went away and he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. So let's think about this for a moment. What can we learn from this real quick? What can we take home from this? Because this, this passage is a very straightforward passage. We don't have a lot of teaching. We have a lot of content. But there are some things that we can learn, some things that we can take home. Because Jesus, through his word, teaches us how to walk in faith. The question is, do we listen to him? Do we listen to it? Do we take seriously his word? This is very basic. You're not going to go away from here going, whoa, that was crazy what Bob said about the word. We should read it. Who thought of that? Right? You, we all know this. We, we, we put out devotional helps to help you do that. We, any way we can, we would love to help people do that. And Jesus warned Peter and the disciples, you're going to fall away. He warned them. He taught them. He's teaching us. He's warning us. They didn't listen. Do we? That's the question. Do we listen? 
The second thing we can learn is that these things we learn and we grow for a purpose. These teachings that Jesus gives us are not just for us. They're to grow us so that we can reach others. In other words, the point is to have an outward focus, not a self-preservation focus. That's part of the problem with Peter. That's part of the problem with the the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It was all self-preservation. Jesus is not teaching us about self-preservation. He's teaching us to be focused on others. Love others. Serve others. Learn and grow. And it's interesting, that's what happened with Peter. If you read First and Second Peter, you'll find some themes that come up a lot. One of them is, think about this, one of them is humility. Peter talks a lot about humility. Peter, that's what happened to him. That's how he grew. He learns humility. He says in 1 Peter 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. So then humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. Cast your anxiety, your worry about self-preservation. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Here is Peter, the guy that shoots his mouth off all the time. The guy that always, a lot of times has wrong ideas, goofy ideas, because he just, my dad, I had a friend who reminded me of Peter. My dad used to say, that boy's mouth enters the room five minutes before the rest of him. Because <laughs> he's just like, blah, 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 you know, just, and that's Peter. And now suddenly Peter is talking about being humble. He's learned this. God wants us to learn. Third thing is testing refines our faith. Nobody likes this. In Luke 22, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Very interesting. And a lot of the new new, uh, translations are picking this up. The word you is in plural, not just Peter, all of the disciples. Satan wants to sift all of you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, and he names specifically Simon, that your faith may not fail. And And this is what I love. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Peter, this is going to be hard. What is sifting? You know, when they, when they harvested wheat, the first thing they would do is they would find like maybe some sort of a hill. They have wheat on a huge thing. We would think of like a tarp and they would grab the four corners and toss it up. And the heavy stuff like the wheat kernels would come down, right back down, and the chaff would flow off. That's why it says the wicked are like chaff. They go whichever way the wind blows. Kind of like, oh, this is, this is like going off the low shelf. Kind of like politicians. Which, which way? That's what I'm for. They go, oh, oh, oh. Uh, you guys, okay, uh, I'm, this is what I'm for. And he says, the wicked are like chaff. They just float away with the wind. But then they take all that because not just the, the wheat kernels are heavy. Also, there's dirt in there and there's other things in there. They're heavy also. So they put them in huge bowls, sometimes big enough for two people, with holes in them. And they sift. And the dirt falls through, but but the holes are too small for the kernels of wheat. So they sift. And the word sift means to shake. To shake. And it can be used to shake heavily and hard. And he says, Peter's going to shake you. I mean, Peter, Satan's going to shake you. He's going to shake you to your core. It's going to be hard. But I'm praying that your faith won't fail. And when you have turned back, Strengthen your brothers. What is he saying? He says, when you come around from that, I got a job for you. You're going to lead. 
you're going to lead. You're going to, your faith is going to be refined. Suddenly, like we just looked at, you're going to be starting to talk about things like humility and service. Fourth thing we can see here is the importance of repentance and forgiveness. Doing, part of doing the will of God is repenting and confessing sin and accepting his forgiveness. Part of doing the will of God is obeying him as he commands us in 1 John chapter 1, that we repent. This is what he wants for us. Understand God has a plan. This is a hard one. He's working even in the worst of times. But think about it. Peter and his disciples thought this was the end of the world. They thought this is, this is the very worst thing that could happen in the whole universe. Jesus being arrested and going to his death is the worst thing we could imagine. And it was the best thing that could ever happen for the universe. And they thought it was the worst thing. They believed it was the worst thing. It felt like the worst thing. So understand God has a plan because he can make the worst thing into the best thing. I don't know how it works. I don't understand it. There are some worst things that have happened in my life and I have not seen the best thing yet. But I trust that God can do that because that's what he did with Jesus. And finally, I think something that can help me sometimes is in difficult situations, stay calm and get biblical. Stay calm and start to think, try to think biblically. In a difficult situation, stopping and thinking, who am I? Who am I? In this situation, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm dealing with something. Who am I? I am a child of God. This is not that important. This is not that important. This is not that bad. This is not whatever. Stay calm and get biblical. Things that we can learn from this passage in our walk with Christ. It's important to us to understand what's going on. We, we understand why. Jesus is going to the cross. We know, we understand that. But also along the way, even in in John here, where it's basically a, a, almost like a recitation of facts of what happened and what was said. We see what Jesus is teaching us to become more like him in our walk with Christ. We take that away from here, wherever we go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. And Lord, that we can bank on it. We can stand. It is a foundation that stands after everything else passes away. Help us to understand that. Help us to see that this world is full of things that will pass away. But your word and human souls will remain. Help us to focus on those things. Help us to be a part of those things. And in doing that, Lord, we become, even as Peter has said, we become humble. We become people who serve, who give, with people with open hands, loving and sharing with others. And in doing that, God, we can change this world to become little by little more like your kingdom, your kingdom that is coming. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.